Welcome to the Manufacturing Executive Podcast, where we explore the strategies and experiences that are driving mid-sized manufacturers forward. Here, you'll discover new insights from passionate manufacturing leaders who have compelling stories to share about their successes and struggles. And you'll learn from B2B sales and marketing experts about how to apply actionable business development strategies inside your business. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of the Manufacturing Executive Podcast. I'm Joe Sullivan, your host and a co-founder of the industrial marketing agency, Gorilla76, where we help B2B manufacturers grow through revenue-focused marketing programs. My guest today will tell you that it's often a labor of love to go from design intent to what the actual manufactured outcome will be without breaking the bank. And one of the things standing in the way for manufacturing organizations today is the decades-old technology that much of the design engineering community is still relying on. As he'll tell you, especially in light of the labor crisis, a rapidly changing supply chain, and sustainability requirements that manufacturers are facing today, the industrial sector is ready for a fundamentally different approach to unlocking productivity growth. But instead of listening to me paraphrase, let me introduce him. Hugo Nordell is founder and CEO of InCube, a deep tech manufacturing software startup. As a product leader, Hugo has helped multinational conglomerates as well as startups bring IoT and SaaS products to market in record time. He has a keen eye for must-have features and how to define success to balance customer needs with company goals. Hugo is an effective cross-functional leader with proven ability to influence key stakeholders in large and small organizations. He takes a collaborative yet data-driven approach to prioritizing work and moving product vision from idea to successful growth. As an engineering executive, Hugo has hired and built multiple high-performance engineering and R&D teams, ranging in size from a handful of co-located members to more than a thousand operating across the world. Hugo, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe, and thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. It's a pleasure having you here. Um, enjoyed talking to you a few weeks back, and uh, I'm excited to go into this conversation in front of our audience here today. So I love having founders and leaders of manufacturing technology businesses on the show. I think so many of you have, you have the most interesting backstories and some problem you experienced or opportunity you saw, you know, in previous roles and you know the earlier parts of your career. So I'd love to have you start out by maybe just telling us a little bit about your own backstory, your career path, how it's influenced you to leap into entrepreneurship with founding of your business and Cube. So this is actually the third company that I'm building. I did take a break building companies for about 10 years or so uh, and kind of ended up in, in the manufacturing space and manufacturing software in particular. But my backstory, kind of more broadly speaking, is I'm actually an engineering physicist, kind of specializing in, in mathematics and statistical physics and somehow ended up not doing any of the stuff that I actually kind of studied in, in school. I kind of straight out of school got headhunted to work on self-driving cars way back before it was kind of this sexy hot topic that it is today. And certainly way before anyone had any sort of semblance of, you know, can this actually be done? Uh, no one really knew back then. And for me in particular, you know, it was a lot of sitting in, you know, the backseat of, of remodeled, you know, early Tesla cars at that point, kind of trying to look at curves on uh, subpar hardware, trying to teach cars to take left hands on smoldering, you know, warm parking lots uh, out in Palo Alto. And then somehow kind of I got smitten with the entrepreneurial uh, kind of flavor of, of Silicon Valley 
even you know standing in line waiting for your morning coffee you know someone had an app that was going to change the world and here i am as you know this this kind of youngster from you know the black forest of northern sweden that kind of had to trek to the other side of the world to you know get sun more than a couple of months a year kind of get away from the snow and uh, i ended up i've always been incredibly fascinated you know by the, kind of the the twilight zone between kind of software and hardware and in particular how clever software can truly kind of change your hardware experience for the better and, and really elevate kind of the experience of using using something physical and i ended up building first a, uh, an autonomous drone company which turned out to be a lot easier than a self-driving car quite honestly and then i ended up after i exited that business i ended up building a what today would you would probably call it ai kind of from a marketing perspective at the very least i personally would probably call it something online some machine learning and then but back then you know we didn't really talk about machine learning we talked about big data <laughs> big data was the you know the topic and you know the onset of of cloud and data lakes and uh, you know other buzzwords that was a pretty sleek little thing that we me and a, a body mind came up with that targeted salespeople. and this kind of weaves into the broader story of kind of how i eventually ended up in in sandvik group but we built this tiny little piece of uh, of technology that would monitor your email communications as part of kind of sales conversations and it populated your sales crm for you automatically you know with varying levels of <laughs> success obviously given that it was machine learning or early machine learning but um the premise of it was pretty cool if you could allow sales people to do less admin and focus far more on you know what they're hired to do which is drive sales and close deals effectively productivity in a sense which has come very much of a theme in my career overall since since that point onward especially in manufacturing and uh, somewhere along the lines in kind of making a career out in silicon valley as a really citizen i somehow ended up being contacted by by sandvik group which was kind of weird because i had zero credentials in manufacturing and certainly not a lot of manufacturing software but it's one of these classical examples of big industrial company struggles or perceived to be struggling with innovation digital transformation internet of things and the like back in you know the mid 2010s eating the industrial's lunch and you know people going effectively so executive teams and boardrooms going on these innovation safaris to silicon valley trying to find them why are these people you know working out the garages you know potentially disrupting us and somehow they got into their head that well we want someone with the silicon valley kind of mindset and experience but who also understands swedish business culture which you know contrary to popular belief i'd never actually worked in sweden <laughs> before joining sandvik they were pretty persistent i think they kept asking me for a good 9 months before i kind of relented and kind of decided to move back with my family to sweden and to stockholm and embark on what has you know subsequently been you know a decade of and hopefully another decade of uh, working in um, with manufacturing software so that's kind of broadly my my background and then kind of as i ventured into into manufacturing more particularly at sandvik i actually built what is today sandvik manufacturing solutions and wasn't called that back then when i first joined it was literally basically you know five guys and a dog more or less a lot of money spent on a lot of what i call c level entertainment but very little kind of connective tissue to customers and customer pain points when it comes to software development but very clearly a company with great ambition and a tremendous amount of talented engineers who historically built hardware and in sandvik's case you know mining equipment and in particular cutting tools for cnc machining you know one of the more commonly used discrete manufacturing methods 
And kind of long story short, we managed to build would today be if you kind of separated the software business out of the rest of Sandvik, it would be one of the larger manufacturing software companies in the world. When you look in, into kind of engineering software in particular, like computer-aided design, computer-aided manufacturing and, and manufacturing planning. But Sandvik doesn't kind of separate out the revenue streams of software in particular anymore, but it, it allowed the company to build a very successful kind of narrative with public capital markets that actually allowed the, the company overall to more than double its share price over some six years or so, which was uh, quite beneficial to the company more broadly, but also helped attract a new generation of, of engineering talent that I don't think would otherwise actually want to join the company. And then that experience taught me a tremendous amount about manufacturing, obviously, but also the complexity of software in what is inherently a hardware-driven world. And I uh, had such fortune to travel you know, all over the world, meet all of these brilliant people from some of the you know, world's most brilliant manufacturing logos. And I kept seeing kind of the same issues and the same frustrations and pain points pop up, regardless of whether you know, you're, you're 10 people working out of a CNC you know, job shop out of Milwaukee, or if you know, you're Volvo Cars or Volvo Group with close to $100, $100 billion worth of revenue. And uh, after a number of years kind of building this extremely aggressive growth journey at Sandvik, I decided, well, I have a lot of ideas of how we can actually drive the next generation of productivity growth in the manufacturing world. And manufacturing is very rapidly changing and it's changing you know, probably more, you know, what, what happened to manufacturing in the you know, late eighties and early nineties when the offshoring to China, you know, starting picking up pace. It's a very interesting time to be in manufacturing, I think. And now doing it as a, as a startup founder and CEO gives you a lot of different perspective that you don't necessarily get the opportunity to kind of see as an executive at a very large multinational. Well, you, you know, you've kind of given us a little background about you and, and um, you know, mentioned that you started to see some of the, the biggest challenges out there right now. Something obviously triggered you to found and cube. Can you tell us just a little bit about what your current venture, what your company does and why you created it. So kind of in a nutshell, Encube is a new type of engineering software that's designed from the ground up to be extremely collaborative, to help close the gap between typically, if you're an original equipment manufacturer, your design intent with a hardware product and what the actual manufactured outcome would be. And today, you know, that's a labor of love to go from design intent to manufactured outcome and not break the bank. And the engineering software that is currently kind of prevalent in the world of manufacturing is quite dated. It's built on an underlying technology and software paradigm that actually made its way into the market in the 80s. It hasn't materially changed since that point onwards. It looks a little bit better, but fundamentally, a large part of engineering software is the same today as it was back in 1989. And in a world where increasingly kind of software is a core value driver and automation and AI and machine learning plays an integral part in you know, unlocking the next level of productivity growth, especially in Western economies and in a world where you know, a lot of companies starting to grapple with the consequences of climate targets and sustainability and very rapidly changing supply chains. I think you need a fundamentally different approach to, to unlocking productivity growth. And the only way to do that is to build something from the ground up that's kind of built for a future that is highly collaborative, unlocks agile engineering 
real and that empowers what is arguably fewer people in a talent that actually knows how to run the hardware engineering process from design through to production and making sure that those people are equipped with the best possible tools to be able to do their job. And uh, the existing set of software out there, I think, don't really cut it anymore. They were built for a world that no longer exists. You know, you and I were talking a little bit a few weeks ago about how the typical workflow in design engineering tends to involve lots of email, taking screenshots from phones, PowerPoint decks, you know, gathering around tables in conference rooms, et cetera. Is, as kind of the workplace evolves, as we see you know, technology emerging and changing? Like, what do you, about this do you see as unsustainable and what are you doing to change some of this? You know, that's a million dollar question, right? The way that I kind of approached this originally, right, was if you take a step back and you look kind of more broadly at kind of what are the mega trends that are fundamentally reshaping manufacturing? And I saw key, three key trends that obviously myself as an individual contributed to kind of hopefully changing manufacturing to the better. I can't really do anything about, but I can certainly tap into them to try to try to drive value creation for customers. But, you know, those three are larger talent scarcity that you've ever seen in the history of modern manufacturing. One in three open roles in manufacturing is never filled in the Western world. You know, that's pretty scary. That's a direct threat to business continuity. And it applies equally whether you're Mercedes or BMW or Airbus or Boeing or if you're a family-owned business, you know, somewhere in South Carolina, by way of example. The second piece is obviously, as I mentioned previously, kind of climate targets. You know, for the first time, probably in in uh, since sustainability started, you know, becoming an actual topic, strategic topic for a lot of boardrooms and a lot of management teams in manufacturing companies, we now are starting to have legislation that actually works and that actually makes sense. That doesn't fundamentally kind of destroy the price mechanics of uh, open capitalist markets. You have the European climate law and you have the somewhat oddly named Inflation Reduction Act in, in North America, which is actually one of the most ambitious kind of green, it's even called the Green New Deal. And, and for a lot of good reason, extremely ambitious uh, sustainability targets embedded into them. And that is very rapidly changing the landscape of what's it going to take to play as a manufacturer? It's very, sustainability is very quickly going from being a something that differentiates you to being a hygiene factor, to being a license to operate. And in the European Union, soon under the European climate law, unless you can show before you actually go to production soon, you won't be allowed to sell your product. Well, that's a pretty good incentive to, you know, for a lot of manufacturers to start taking this seriously. And then, you know, this is mixed in with, you know, what is increasingly the most unstable geopolitical landscape we've seen since the Cold War era. And if you look at China, by way of example, foreign direct investment in China over the last 18 months is down by almost 90%. And then that obviously begs the question, where's that money going? We're not talking small amounts of money, Joe, that's kind of companies are no longer investing in, you know, they're, they're just kind of holding on to them. That money is being heavily reinvested in rebuilding what I call kind of the reindustrialization of Europe and North America. It's happening at an unprecedented scale, at an unprecedented speed. It's actually happening faster than the outsourcing to China did in the first place. And that reshoring of supply chains is going to be really difficult for a lot of companies because the talent is simply not there. There's not a critical mass of talent available anymore because we dismantled these many of these industries in the 90s and you know throughout the course of, of the 2000s up until just a few years ago. That's going to be a world of pain 
for a lot of companies to grapple with, even as it also promises great opportunity for many local and regional manufacturers in Western Europe and in North America. And the third and final piece, right, is it's probably never been harder than it is today to actually take a hardware product to market. You would think that, oh, well, actually, it's probably easier than ever. I would actually wager that that's not true, because in a world where talent is extremely scarce and fewer and fewer people actually know how a shop floor runs and how a manufacturing floor operates and how to design products to be well equipped for a production environment where you can actually, okay, this thing can be made without a tremendous amount of headaches and and excess costs that you didn't plan on is really hard. And one of the key reasons is product performance kind of requirements from end consumers is, is going through the roof very rapidly. And you have these newfangled technologies like organic design and topology optimization that to some degree is trying to kind of spur the 3D printing revolution. But to a large degree, what it does, like these changes, while they increase product performance, reduce weight while you know providing tensile strength or, or what have you, it can actually you know make it an order of magnitude harder to actually manufacture it. And with the onset of you know more climate friendly friendly product and flying climate friendly materials, the entire industry now has to adapt to entirely new materials that we've never really worked with. And so these three in combination, right, provide a pretty messy and pretty scary market cocktail, in my view. And to me, in a world with, where talent scarcity is, you know, growing more or less exponentially, climate targets is rapidly kind of closing the door on you if you're not able to meet them. And where, quite honestly, manufacturing process technology innovations actually move it faster than, you know, the speed of software development. You know, you need a new paradigm. You need software that actually puts the people who know how to run the hardware process, uh, you need that puts them at the center and that actually tries to deliver on a 10x productivity growth. And it's it sounds kind of disruptive, but that is what we need. We need a fundamental step change in productivity from engineering software because simply spending money on CapEx investments in manufacturing facilities, it's no longer good enough when it's only going to actually exacerbate the problem for a lot of companies worldwide, because driving automation at the end of the value chain only makes things worse if what you're putting into that workflow doesn't hold up. If the designs are no longer actually designed with manufacturability in mind, if they're no longer designed with a clear view of what the actual cost per part or the cost of production is actually going to be. And that, if you're not careful, that can topple even the biggest of companies. And so that's kind of the backdrop that I saw at Sandvik. I saw it leaving Sandvik, and, and that's kind of been one of the core tenets of, of why I founded Encube, because there's this fundamental gap in ensuring what I call the product industrialization process of a lot of hardware engineering, especially for complex products and precision engineered products, where there's a new generation of talent coming in that now works in the engineering offices, right? They're the ones designing products, but they've never set foot in a manufacturing environment. But all software in the world was literally designed for a person who actually started their career out of high school on the shop floor, spent 10 years learning the craft, and then slowly but surely 
after 30, 35 years of working more or less at the same company, ended up in the engineering office, ended up designing products for their employer, and they could work with the kind of software, the existing software paradigm, because they understood manufacturing, they understood industrialization, they understood and were able to wear many hats. But today's world is hyper-specialized. You don't have these kind of broad-scale generalists anymore. They've all retired, or they're incredibly expensive and so few that you know virtually everyone is kind of pulling at them. And so you'll struggle tremendously to keep them if you have them. And so in a world where people who now fundamentally, mechanical engineers who now design a lot of, a lot of products that are supposed to move the world forward, and who actually build and design a lot of the products that actually kind of ensure a quality of life, they don't actually understand manufacturing. And I saw this firsthand over the years at Sandvik, how many companies and many customers, they saw, you know, trailing marginal cost of production for new product development and introduction going in the wrong direction. And you can actually trace it back to increasingly poor design requirements. People are no longer, they don't understand how to design products for manufacturing. And that's a huge problem because at the end of the day, if you're a hardware startup, not being in control of what your cost profile and marginal cost is at production, that's going to kill you. If you're Volvo cars, well, then you have the cushion to be able to withstand it, but it drives a lot of needless costs, frustration and friction. And so what we want to do at Enqube, right, is, well, let's leverage AI and machine learning, but package it in such a way that still puts the people who run the hardware engineering process at the very center, because people are not going to go away from manufacturing anytime soon. If anything, people are going to become ever more important as part of the process going forward, because there's going to be so few of them comparably. And so we have to unlock them somehow. We have to find a different Pareto where instead of spending 80% of your time trying to understand, for instance, if a design has potential manufacturability issues, you know, a piece of software, clever piece of software should be able to highlight and analyze and provide those kind of baseline insights for you so that you can spend 80% of your time asking yourself as a team, what do we want to do about this? Which of these potential issues do we live with because they're part of functional requirements, for instance? And which of them are unintended consequences of changes we've made in a different part of a large complex product assembly, by way of example? And that fundamentally shifts you know, the entire engineering process to one of true innovation, to one of real concurrent agile engineering, because now with access to modern kind of software design for collaboration and AI, you can get access to insights at the point of design that you previously would have to go all the way through production to get some sort of feedback on. But we can change that equation. And ever since you know day one at NQ, we've worked with some of the most well-known you know, manufacturing logos in the world, Volvo, Beyond Gravity. We work with a number of the world's largest space organizations in the world and aerospace companies, some of the largest defense contractors to prove out this hypothesis. And so far, you know, the feedback's nothing short of spectacular, quite honestly. And these are multi-billion dollar companies who see the pains. You know, they're struggling to control a product and hardware engineering process themselves that they've been running for 50 plus years because of all of these key issues that I mentioned previously. And so it's very exciting and also extremely humbling 
to be able to build a company, you know, together with some of these logos who quite arguably, you know, they could have decided very easily not to work with this scrappy, you know, startup from Stockholm, but somehow they decided to take a bet on us and it seems to be working out. Okay, let's take a quick break here. I'm really excited to announce an incredible event our team at Gorilla76 will be co-hosting in late January and early February of 2024 in Austin, Texas, just for marketers in the manufacturing sector. I'm going to hand it to our strategist, Peyton Warren, to give you the details. Hi, I'm Peyton Warren, strategist at Gorilla76. Over the past few years, our team has been running twice per month digital learning events for industrial marketers called Industrial Marketing Live. It's been a huge success, and we're seeing 50 to 100 manufacturing marketing folks show up regularly. But one thing this group has told us is that they've been itching for a live, in-person event just for them. Well, we're super excited to be teaming up with True Marketing and Kadena's Part Solutions to deliver exactly that. January 31st through February 2nd of 2024, we'll be co-hosting the Industrial Marketing Summit in Austin, Texas. We have an incredible lineup of speakers for day one who will be covering topics that include SEO in the dawning era of AI, high-impact product marketing, elevating the role of marketing within your manufacturing organization, and giving out a demand generation playbook for B2B manufacturers. And that just skims the surface. On day two, we'll be conducting in-depth breakout sessions to go deeper on some of these key topics and help you apply them inside your own organizations. Not only will this be an intensive learning event with some of the sharpest minds in the industrial marketing space, but we'll be hosting social events in the evenings with great food and venues for networking with other manufacturing folks who are trying to solve the same kinds of marketing challenges you are. We're limited to 300 seats, so visit industrialmarketingsummit.com to learn more and reserve your ticket. We'd love to see you in Austin. Hugo, I think you've done a really nice job painting a picture of sort of what the problem is out there, really the combination of quite a few converging challenges and, and problems that we're facing from, you know, so much tribal knowledge going out the door right now, young engineers who haven't come into the workforce with manufacturing experience, you know, this, this massive push for reshoring in, in spite of, you know, major challenges, finding labor, you know, the, the sustainability issues, there's, there's a lot going on and, and converging as far as software and AI technology and machine learning, can you kind of give us maybe some examples of, of ways that, you know, the technologies like what you guys are bringing to market within Incube are, are you know, where are some places where they're going to be able to help and where, frankly, manufacturers are going to need this kind of technology to play a bigger role? I think I can speak to it from kind of two perspectives. I think one of them is obviously I'm, I'm pretty well connected and into the broader kind of manufacturing kind of software startup space. So I, I have a pretty good view of what the overall trends are and kind of how AI is being developed and applied. And, and that really kind of targets multiple parts of the hardware engineering process overall. And then I can speak to more in particular what we do at Incube. If we start kind of, again, more broadly, there are, there are a couple of kind of sweet spots in, in my view where AI can genuinely accelerate the hardware engineering process. One of them is really helping companies dramatically simplify product performance simulation you know is one of the key areas this is obviously if you're boeing you're going to have hundreds of people who are specialized kind of simulations engineers but if you're a smaller company you might have only a handful or maybe even you know a couple 
which actually puts you at a very big disadvantage in order to understand at the point of design what the potential performance and requirement set that a design actually imposes on what will eventually be a physically manufactured product. And this is a incredibly compute intensive process right today. And it's, you know, equal part science and art historically. And now we're seeing, you know, just in this last year alone, we've seen this tremendous acceleration in, in unlocking speed of compute for engineering simulation on product performance, like finite element analysis, computational fluid dynamics, and so on. And it, it sounds kind of esoteric and, and, and abstract for a lot of people, but actually what it allows you to do is in a matter of seconds, you can actually use deep learning and, and AI to simulate, for instance, you know, the bending of, of a rod or you know the heat dissipation of within a given type of material that would today even with you know very sophisticated kind of high performance compute clusters might take days to simulate and you know that companies have this ability to underestimate the power of time and what unlocking time can actually do for engineering ingenuity and so i think this is bound to be an absolute revolution in terms of how we unlock more companies to be able to do very sophisticated, you know, performance tests entirely digitally, in a far more rapidly, and far more often, in a far more agile fashion, and I think that's going to drive, you know, first time right, as as the expression goes, much faster. So it's going to have a huge impact on time to market, obviously, but also in terms of kind of the the cost of the R and D process itself. If you only need two prototypes in order to then go to ramp up production, as opposed to five or six. That's bound to have a you know big impact on engineering budget and your return on investment. So that's obviously one of them. And then you have we have what to a large degree what we do at Encube, which is looking and understanding cost and climate drivers, which is kind of that part of that three-legged stool of, of hardware engineering. One of them is obviously design, you know, what is stuff going to look like? But then you have, you know, things are, you know, how do they work? And that's the simulation piece I just talked about. And then you have what I call the, you know, the you know, made-like, which is, well, this thing, you can design something for crazy performance that you know, is the most beautiful thing you've ever seen, but it's impossible to actually manufacture. And certainly impossible to manufacture at a price point or at a cost level that you can actually deal with as a company. And that's without that third kind of leg of the stool, it's not much of a stool to sit on. Yeah, you can kind of wiggle around on, on a two-legged stool for a while, but you're going to get kind of tired pretty quickly, I think. And so what we do at Encube in terms of kind of applying AI is we've built a huge, like we've collected a huge amount of data and worked with some of the best and brightest kind of people when it comes to, in particular, CNC machining, which is one of the world's kind of, unless you know what it is, you probably have never heard of it. <laughs> but it's it's one of those manufacturing processes that pretty much defines quality of life for most people. It's pretty hard to not touch a, touch a physical product that wasn't partly made with CNC machining, whether it's a server rack or whether it's you know your iPhone or a pacemaker or a space rocket, they all contain CNC machining. And so what we do at Encube is we say, okay, well, here's this $600 billion global you know, market for CNC machining where today you have no idea how what the cost of CNC machining something's going to be at the point of design. 
It's pure guesswork. And you won't know typically until you actually program the machine, which can be two years later, two years down the line from when you design it and when you actually determine and decide, you know, here's what we're going to make, guys. The problem with kind of the current way of, of how the hardware engineering runs and for, for what we target at Incube is your design actually dictates up to 80% of the costs that you're going to see in production per part. But it's kind of weird to me to not have a very, very good understanding of the actual manufacturing activity, which easily, depending on kind of whether you're running large volume manufacturing, you're making millions of something, or even if you're making one of something, it is that manufacturing activity is between 20 and, you know, north of 50% of your production cost structure, right? It's a huge amount of your cost. And relying on guesswork, a kind of rule of thumb to understand how a design drives costs and increasingly due to future and very aggressive climate legislation, not having a, even a remote idea of how that manufacturing activity is going to drive climate footprint and how your particular design choices actually drive climate footprint. I think it's going to be very difficult to build, to design and build and take to market competitive products that consumers are going to want to buy over the next decade if you don't start considering this as a first, you know, first class citizen of, of hardware engineering. And we leverage multiple different types of AI to help companies virtually in real time while they're designing a part that's going to be made with CNC machining. We tell them, Here's the issues. Here's the level of complexity. You're going to need these types of machines. You're going to need these types of tools. Here are things you might not even be able to reach. Like you can't even, and here are, here are actual design choices you've made that are untenable with this production method. And we give you that upfront. We give you it visually. We give you it in context. And we allow you to ask questions to our AI so that it can explain to you and to the broader team in layman's terms, why it's a problem and what you should be doing about it. But we don't go as far as saying, hey, you know, we're going to do your job for you because I think that's the wrong approach to AI. I think AI has to fundamentally unlock human productivity. I don't think it should be, and I think it's actually quite, I don't think it's meaningful to try to pursue it from the point of, you know, here's something that's going to replace a ton of jobs. People are already kind of willingly leaving manufacturing and unwillingly leaving manufacturing because because the factories moved you know to the other parts of the world now that it's coming back as i said in the beginning there's no critical mass so you want to make a true dent and you want to become truly competitive as a manufacturer in the next decade i think you've got to invest heavily in software that actually treats your engineering talent almost like royalty you know it's fundamentally designed to help them collaborate become more agile and be far more productive in use of their time. So at the end of the day, you know, the one resource you can never get back is time spent. So those are some of the kind of practical applications of AI the way I see it. Well, Hugo, I love the way you summarized all that there. I especially like your point about treating talent like royalty and using technology and software and, you know, everything that's becoming possible with machine learning to kind of help unlock human productivity so really great conversation today. Is there anything you'd like to add a way to you know, put a bow on this? Anything you'd like to say to manufacturing leaders who are listening right now? 
Yeah, I think the last thing I would say is, you know, don't be afraid of artificial intelligence and machine learning, but also certainly don't let kind of marketing kind of scare you into making investments that you otherwise wouldn't. AI still has to be fundamentally connected to the core core kind of KPIs that you already depend on to run your business. That's not going to change. If AI providers that you engage with and that reach out can't articulate and understand fundamentally the processes and the KPIs and the data you depend on to drive, you know, competitive edge, they're not worth their salt. So, you know, stay stay true to to the found, you know, the fundamentals of your business and an AI will will work wonders for you. Great advice, Hugo. Um, can you tell our listeners how they can learn more about what you're doing at Incube and get in touch with you? Yeah, so it's uh, pretty easy. So you can find a TISA website of ours on getncube.com. And uh, there's, you can also contact us from that website. If you're curious of reaching out to me directly, it's hugo at getncube.com. I'm pretty quick on, on answering emails. And you know I'm always curious and, and interested in kind of listening and sharing perspectives. And if anyone wants to learn more about, you know, how we might be able to help help your business in particular, you know, feel free to reach out and I'd be more than happy to set up a call and, and explore opportunities together. Well, Hugo, great conversation today. I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Uh, likewise. Thanks for having me, Joe. It's been a pleasure. You bet. As for the rest of you, I hope to catch you on the next episode of The Manufacturing Executive. You've been listening to The Manufacturing Executive Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you'd like to learn more about industrial marketing and sales strategy, you'll find an ever-expanding collection of articles, videos, guides, and tools specifically for B2B manufacturers at gorilla76.com learn. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.